This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Hey there, welcome back. Today, we're going to talk to Dana Levin-Robinson, the CEO and co-founder of Upfront, the first site dedicated to pricing transparency in daycares. I don't know about you, but I'm a mother of four. And when I first heard about this company, what came to my mind was, how does this not exist anymore? There's some really important reasons why it doesn't. And Dana is going to share all about that in what I think, frankly, is an amazing startup story that we'll get to in just a little bit. She is the former chief of staff at Virtual Health, a growth stage health tech company that was named Deloitte's 39th fastest growing company and spent years in various advertising agencies in New York City. Dana graduated with her MBA from NYU Stern School of Business and BS from Boston University and lives in New York City with her husband and baby son. Dana has another little one on the way. So as we're going through this discussion, she's just a few months away from having her second baby, which will probably be happening right around the time that this episode goes live. She is a powerhouse and you're going to hear so many facets of her story, I think are really interesting from how her education actually hurt her when she was trying to get into the startup space, some really big challenges that she faced as she tried to show the value in her startup to investors that didn't quite get it. She has some really great actionable advice from raising funds, meeting, connecting with investors. And then her growth strategy for her business is one that we have not talked about on this podcast yet. So, so much good stuff in here. Make sure you listen to the end. Let's get started. Let's dive right in. Today, we're talking with Dana Levin Robinson. Hey, Donna, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. You have been a little bit of a mentor for me on my startup journey, and I know you have so much good stuff to share. I appreciate it, and I'm always happy to help and talk to other founders who can learn from my mistakes and my journey because I had so many founders who were ahead of me who helped me, so it's always good to pass it along. Yeah, I love that. Definitely paying it forward. Let's start at the beginning of your story, though. So have you always been an entrepreneur? How did you kind of start your journey in business? Well, you know, my parents would joke that yes, ever since I started monetizing my play kitchen at, you know, age four, I started charging them for uh, the plastic food. But, you know, my background was really working at larger companies after college. I worked at large ad agencies, kind of, you know, living the madman life. The madman life? What did you go to school for? Did you go to school for marketing? I went to school for marketing at okay. Boston University with a minor in advertising. Thought that advertising would be a really nice hybrid of, you know, the creative and the business, which it absolutely was, and really truly gave me such a great opportunity of learning responsibility very early on, knowing how to work with clients, which often means 
dealing with difficult people. And in the line that I was, which was in account management, also herding a lot of cats and working with creative teams and engineering teams and client teams, and really kind of figuring out, you know, how do you corral all these people into one cohesive strategy, which is a great lesson, I think that when you're a founder and, you know, finding yourself in the middle of all these disciplines and trying to get everyone, you know, to go in the same direction. But, you know, very quickly realized that it was very hierarchical. It was like very large companies, not a great work-life balance. (laughs) You know, I was probably getting home at 11 p.m. every single day for five years and, you know, decided this wasn't really my long term. And in parallel, I was also doing my MBA at NYU Stern in operations and analytics, kind of decided to move away from a marketer background and decided that startups are really where I want to be. What I'm really good at is bringing order to chaos. Uh, Someone said that to me early in my career, and and I would actually really think that nails it is I'm really good at figuring out what needs to be done on day zero, what processes, what infrastructure, what team do we have to have in place, and then get it done, which translates very well to startups. So I consider the second part of my career really being in tech and growth stage startups and kind of laying out the foundation for me being a founder. I love that bringing order to chaos. I think that speaks so clearly to so much about being in startups. So did you work in any notable startups? What was your kind of your trajectory from there? Yeah. And I think this is really one of those situations, you know, when you hear, you know, successful CEOs talk about, you know, sort of, I was there at the right time. This is absolutely one of those cases because I had actually interviewed at so many startups and I always like to caveat to people, this was not handed to me. I went through 70 interviews, that's seven zero and got rejected. It was painful. That was over a year. Wow. And I got really, really depressed because a lot of people saw my background. You know, a lot of founders, like startup executives, are like, oh, she's an MBA. She's not going to get her hands dirty. She doesn't have any startup experience. And I just kept getting rejected. And I was so frustrated. And at one point I said, oh, I'm just going to have to, you know, take like this entry level job, you know, give up everything I've worked for, which is, re- I've literally been told to take my MBA off my resume. That's and- insane. So it's like your MBA was working against you because they didn't think that you had experience or that you could kind of be gritty enough. Like, exactly. what is that? And from a top tier school, no less, I'm like, I just finished paying for this. I don't want to take it off. But it was really, really difficult. You know, so I want to caveat that, like, I make it sound like this, like, you know, seamless transition, if you look at my resume, but it really wasn't. And yeah. to be completely blunt, I took a job I didn't like. You know, right after Stern, I took a job that had the right title, but I knew wasn't the right culture and wasn't really the right fit for me. But I kind of said, okay, let's come here for a year or two. Let's leave the agency world, you know, go into a a smaller company. And then, you know, I can pivot, you know, so I call that, you know, and I talk to a lot of people who are trying to get out of the agency life or trying to move into startups. And I constantly tell them this isn't a 180. It's often a 90-90. You're often going to have to have a job or two between ending up where you want to, to 
recalibrate the optics of your resume, but also just kind of learn what do you like and what do you not. So I had to do the same and it's a gamble, right? There's no guarantee that I wouldn't have ended up there. And I was deeply unhappy. And and I knew like they basically paid me money to be a PowerPoint monkey and which is not what I wanted to do, but the gamble paid off. So the notable startup that I worked on before I started up front was virtual health. When I started, we were right after our first fundraising event. I joined as our VP of marketing. And when I say I joined as the VP of marketing, I mean, I inherited like literally a logo that we actually ended up redoing and brand colors. And that's basically it. No budget. That's the true startup experience right there. A name, a logo, brand colors, no budget. Now make magic happen. Yeah, no budget, not even a structure of a budget. I had to say what the budget was. And hilariously enough, I walked in in October, I think it was around October. And in February, we they had secured a 20 by 30 foot exhibit space at the largest health IT conference in the country. I can't even like with a logo. So we're talking about actual physical construction of a booth. So, you know, I panicked for, you know, a few days. Then sat down, figured out, hammered out a budget, figured out what I needed to get done, found a vendor in 10 days, you know, and do what I do well. But it was absolutely being thrown off the deep end and, you know, figuring it out very quickly. And, you know, I'm still very close to the CEO of the company, to Adam. I was there for three years. Over the course of the three years that I was at Virtual Health, we had raised our Series B. We went from, I think I was one of the earliest employees in the office. I think I was like number six or seven. And we grew to like 130. It was it was such a roller coaster and incredible amounts of fun and incredible amounts of work. I realized I actually hadn't taken a full day off in like my entire history at that company when I left. And it, that really made my job. I think that when I entered virtual health, it was a maybe, you know, if I'll be a founder and by the time toward the end, it was when I'll be a founder. It really cemented my feeling of, all right, you know what? I can do this. You know, I can do a day zero. I can, I know what needs to get done and I can kind of figure it out by tapping into my network, reading online, piloting a few small programs that are affordable, literally on Google Sheets, and then figuring out, you know, what needs to be done at scale. And over the course of those three years, you know, I moved on. I originally started as our marketing, then actually added our business development department, um, PR stayed under me, then actually added all of our operations, all the tools we used across the company, and then actually HR. So by the time I left, I was overseeing four P&Ls, four teams. We didn't really have a COO. I was basically serving in that role and was very much ready to start my own thing. You said something that really stuck out to me that like you knew that you were going to be a founder. So when it comes to starting up front, was it that you had an idea and you decided to pursue it? Or were you like a founder to be in pursuit of an idea? Absolutely the former. So upfront has been a joke, like pretty much like circulating in my head and, and honestly, just like filling it up for the past decade. The idea with upfront, you know, and even though now we're focused on the parenting world, it actually came out of weddings. It came when I was engaged. I met with a bunch of vendors. I met with a florist, you know, sat down, looked at all the pretty photos and then got the pricing sheet and realized she was never in my budget. And I just totally wasted my time. And I remember that seed getting planted of like, why didn't I know that? 
why did I not have this very important piece of information, the price, and which is a core part of how I'm making my decisions of picking vendors, right? Not the only reason I'd pick a vendor, but a core part of it, you know, I know what my budget is and I know I'm going to stick to it. And why did I find that at the end? And now it's just an uncomfortable conversation. I took time like, out of my day you know, to leave the office and go meet with this person. And the second seed got planted of like, these numbers are out there. People have used these vendors before, but nobody's really ever talked about pricing, you know, a pricing directory, a part, you know, marketplace, whatever the semantics you want to call it as, you know, a central destination. There's really no site that you would go to of how much does this service cost? If I wanted to find out, you know, how much a stroller or a mug costs, I can just go to Amazon, right? I can find out how much a Yeti mug costs, but if I want to find out how much this florist costs, well, good luck. You have to engage with them. You have to meet with them. And then that information basically gets held hostage until after the meeting. And, and what do you think that is for service providers? It's just kind of like a lead magnet kind of thing? Like, Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I found that there's really two answers depending on the size of that business. The experience that I ran into, and this was an experienced vendor, an experienced florist, you know, very well known in New York, was absolutely intentionally hiding the price. And a big reason for that is because, look, they're, look, these are inexperienced consumers. These are first time decisions, right? I had never gotten married before. You know, I wanted the perfect day. And there's an urgency. There's a window of when I have to make this decision. And they absolutely take advantage of that. You know, so I, well, I hate to see it use the word manipulative. It absolutely is. They're absolutely hoping that you go in, you fall in love, and you go above your budget because you want the perfect day for your perfect wedding. And it's done like that actually across multiple industries, including daycares, which Upfront plays in now, but funerals as well. And again, you're looking at very common user profiles of inexperienced, emotional decision, urgency. So all of those have that in common. Then there's the second group of businesses, which honestly don't really mind the price being public. They literally don't have a digital presence. They're just not sophisticated enough. They don't have social media pages. They don't have a website. So the price not being available is a function of the website not being available. If they had a website, then they probably would have put it on there. But yet again, that doesn't really solve our issue. Say every price was available on every tiny website that's not searchable and that's not consolidated. So that still doesn't solve our issue of what if I wanted to do a proper comparison? I still have to know what website to go to, you know, based on recommendations or additional research. And I have to go one by one by one. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I find it really interesting how you started with this one problem that you saw when you were getting married and you realized how far it kind of spread out across all these other industries. And then there was the secondary problem of these small businesses that don't have the presence and yeah. can't be marketing themselves in a way that they can be profitable or they can scale. So what did the first iteration of the business look like? Oh, that's so funny. It takes me back to about a year ago. I was actually just talking about this with my co-founder of a year ago, we fired our dev team and we were still, you know, doing weddings. <laughs> so well, what a difference a year makes, right? And in, in our line of work. But, you know, originally we were going down the wedding path and, you know, very quickly realized that, you know, the roadmap included funerals and daycares. 
But weddings in particular had a very serious competitor, which was WeddingWire.com, which also owns The Knot. Unlike the other industries, WeddingWire is actually very good at their job. (laughs) And while they didn't have prices for a lot of the vendors, it wasn't out of question that they could decide to add that once we got big enough and our moat would just essentially be gone. You know, when we actually scraped their site, it was about 20, 30% of the businesses on there had prices. Granted, there were ranges, they were like starting from 3000. So not the most concrete information, but enough information that, you know, they were a serious competitor. They had hundreds of millions of dollars of funding where they could take us down pretty easily. So that's when really the conversation of, okay, I think we need to pivot or at least prove our concept and product in another industry that has a larger data gap where that 20, 30% is closer to zero. And there's not as many, you know, well-funded competitors so we can basically just jump ahead. And daycares and preschools emerged pretty early on. That was always on the roadmap. We just moved it up. And when we actually scraped a lot of our competitors, we scraped the web, um, fewer than 6% of the businesses actually list their prices online. So we're like, this is great. There is nothing. <laughs> we are going to be the first ones to do this. And that was the first really big pivot of the company. We're still focused on bringing pricing transparency to these industries. We're doing it in a very similar way, but it's going to be a different industry to sort of prove the concept and then scale it into other industries. Amazing. Yeah. And and I'm also omitting the fact that this happened on a Saturday night in January and we all had a panic attack at 3 a.m. So, you know, again, everything makes it sounds a lot smoother than the decision actually was. There was absolutely a panic attack at 3 a.m. over this. (laughs) I love that. I'm so glad that you shared that because I say this over and over again in episodes, but we see successful founders, we see successful startups, but we don't see all of the panic attacks that happen yeah. behind the scenes. And it wasn't a given, right? You know, yeah, great. It worked out. That wasn't a given that it was going through. This was a gamble. Yeah. All our market research had depended on weddings. All the vendor interviews we did depended on weddings. All the user acquisition we had done. This required basically scrapping all of it and restarting our research, our process, our the website design, removing the categories, adding new ones, understanding how, you know, the childcare space is structured. So this was really not, you know, a minor decision of pivoting. And it was absolutely the right one. But, you know, yet again, when you're in the middle of it, that's there's no guarantee. Yeah. And there's kind of a big elephant in the room that nobody's talking about with these types of things. So you had this great idea and you were seeing this model work in the wedding industry. But then when you went to the childcare industry, you were seeing nothing. So there's two possibilities right there. It is possible. The possibility number one is that someone tried it and there wasn't a market for it and it didn't work. So you know, there's a reason that there's nobody in this space. And then the other reason is that you are the absolute first and you have a goldmine of a business idea, but you don't know at that point if it's path A or path B. Yeah. And we, and we've asked around and, you know, fortunately my co-founder and I are pretty well connected. We had come from the tech world. My co-founder came from Google and we were obviously able to search online of, you know, past companies. And there have been a few companies focused on pricing transparency 
around B2B SaaS. Actually, there was a company in funerals called Parting. They actually ended up pivoting away from the pricing piece. So, you know, there absolutely was the thought in their back of our heads of like, huh, these companies didn't pull it off. Why? You know, what's the issue here? And we have a pretty good sense of what that is. But I think there's sort of bigger macro trends of why this hasn't been done. And the funny thing is when I talk to parents, you know, both my co-founder and I are parents as well. And we talk to our network, you know, we talk to just everyone we know who has kids, they get what we're doing right away. They're like, hell yeah, like I want the pricing. This is absolutely key part of how I make my decisions. And you're right, like why doesn't this exist? So the feedback we get is where was this yesterday when I was looking? That was my initial reaction. I've got four kids. Yeah, I wish I had this, right? I wish I didn't have to waste my time calling up all these businesses who never pick up their phone and had the information and then was able to, you know, filter down my options, you know, much more efficiently. So that's been the feedback we get from the parents and the users. And I think, you know, our numbers speak for themselves when we see the reaction we've had since our launch. But on the other counterpoint of it is the investors and the investors don't always get it. Still this year, I have this in writing. We're going to frame these one day, you know, of I get investors telling me that, well, we don't think parents are price conscious. That's not how they choose childcare. And Say what? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, what world do you live in? Do you have children or I mean, maybe, maybe that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that we are pitching the people who control the purse funds are not necessarily the people who benefit from upfront. They are not the upfront parent. I've literally been told, oh yeah, I guess I guess my kids went to daycare. I don't know. My wife handled that 30 years ago. Mm. And that's a tough person to sell to, like of what our value is and what problem we're solving. Because that's not personal to them. It doesn't resonate. So hilariously enough, we've actually had to start using analogies in real estate. <laughs> and for okay. some reason, that, that seems to work really well. So my advice would be is if, you know, if you're not resonating with the investors, for whatever reasons, there's just no, they don't get the pain points, not clicking, find an analogy that works really well in an industry they do understand. So in our particular case, the analogy that I always pull out is like, well, imagine you were buying an apartment, this part they get, and we were street easy, but street easy didn't have any prices. You could see where the apartment is. You could see how big it is. You could see what schools it's zoned for, but you can't see how much it costs until you actually go visit it. And they're like, well, that's not a very helpful website. I said, exactly. That's exactly what we're doing in this industry. And that's where I, I hear the click happening. I love that. That's such great advice, you know, yes. because a lot of people will have to pitch to investors that can't make that personal connection to the startup that they're building. That doesn't mean that their startup's not valuable or that has a hell of potential, but just that they're speaking to somebody who has the funds to help them get to the next level, but can't see the full picture from their own personal experience. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, it, and it's really hard, right? As a founder, we constantly have to ask ourselves, am I right about this? With Upfront, I know I'm right on a gut level. Like, you know that prices should be public and searchable. It's as simple as that. It sounds so elementary, but here we are. It doesn't exist until we came along. And no shortage of people in the industry telling me it's not going to work for reasons X, Y, Z. So you have to have pretty strong conviction on what you're doing and also be very honest with yourself of, 
Why hasn't it been done before? And what's the holdup? And I would argue with childcare and a lot of the parenting world, I don't think it's a coincidence. We are seeing now an uptick, um, like Outlet, for example, just IPO'd. We are seeing an uptick of parent tech and parent consumer services for a reason. And the pandemic obviously accelerated that. I think if you looked at five to eight years ago, we saw an uptick of wedding services, minted, paperless post, um, Zola. That's not a coincidence. That's when the millennials got married. The millennials are now having kids. So if you actually look at the macro trends, about a million millennial millennials are becoming parents every single year. They're bringing in their expectations around efficiency and transparency. The same way you buy something on Everlane and you want to know, you know, what percentage went to the manufacturer versus Everlane. You're bringing that expectation in with childcare of, I want to know what my options are. I'm not going to make all these phone calls. So I think we're seeing now a trend of that happening across the parenting world and childcare specifically, because we're expecting better. We don't want to stay in the dark ages, but the industry itself hasn't really caught up. So it's a constant fight of, you know, we know we're doing right by our users, but the industry and the providers themselves are just are not super into it, to be honest. You have such an amazing startup story. And there's so many nuggets of wisdom that you shared there. I think particularly about the millennial generation and how they're driving some of the way that we interact online, right? In the way that we work with businesses online. But I want to pivot a little bit to talk about the growth strategy. So you have a very interesting business model. How were you able to scale it up and make it profitable? You know, how did you acquire customers? Yes. I mean, I will caveat, you know, that we're not profitable yet, but, you know, from a scaling perspective, we're sitting on a very interesting model of our product. So a big hero of Upfront is Rich Barton, which I encourage everyone to look up. Um, he's, I joke that he's the patron saint of Upfront. He just doesn't know it yet. Um, he will. And he was the founder of Expedia, of Zillow, of Glassdoor. And you can kind of sense a theme here of, you know, simplifying the process around seeing what a salary is at a company, booking your travel, getting an appraisal of your house. All of those, a big focus of all his companies has been, you know, transparency of information. And we really see upfront as sort of in the vein of that and following that philosophy. But if you actually dig in of how those companies were successful, the answer is just SEO. And it gets very, very granular. Those companies have hundreds of thousands of listings, right? Every single house on Zillow, every single hotel that you Google, Expedia tends to come up. Companies come up on Glassdoor. And SEO was a key part of how they were able to grow very sustainably and in the long term. Granted, yes, they were very early to their space. So they were able to get that domain power very early. But we see upfront as the same opportunity because, as I mentioned, these daycares and preschools don't have websites, right? So we are the digital presence. When you're Googling this daycare near you, we're the ones who come up. So we knew that SEO is not just a key way of harnessing users over the long term. It's the most cost efficient because we're not paying anything. There's no CPC here, you know, that we have to balance against whatever revenue we bring in. And we went from almost obviously 0% SEO at launch, you know, not even a year ago to now it's more than 20% of our traffic. And we're really big believers in SEO over the long term winning out. 
And the strategy and the execution behind that is being very aggressive on our listing growth. You know, we're past 20,000 listings at this point on our site across four different large states, including New York and California. And we've done that very deliberately, knowing we were going to grow SEO over time to bring in those users. And that's going to be something that just keeps compounding on itself. And we have to constantly explain that to investors of, you know, why didn't we just stay in New York and monetize? Why didn't we just, you know, test out the New York market, monetize that with a bunch of businesses, and then go to Boston and then go to LA. And I have to constantly go back to the SEO strategy of, listen, we are actually going to miss an opportunity to own the domain of these businesses if we don't do this aggressively because someone else will catch up otherwise. This is amazing. And I actually love this because it's counter to a lot of advice that I give startups. Because when you're in the early days, right, and you're on a bootstrapping budget or, you know, you only have your seed round, you have to be really careful about where you're putting budget. SEO is a long-term strategy. It's a lot of work where a lot of startups are looking to see that growth much faster and that revenue come in much faster. So if you're talking maybe a SaaS model or an e-commerce, a CPG, this may not be the best way to go for you so you can, you know, hit those profitability numbers and to gain usership at a rate to show growth. But for your business, it's a completely different story. Can you talk to me a little bit about the specific SEO strategy? Because I think that you touched on it, but someone who's not familiar with SEO might not understand why having all of these listings is a strategy in and of itself and how it works. Absolutely. And it's something that, you know, we're super passionate about. And it, so it's funny, when I brought on my co-founder, I originally was a solo founder and then added Shafali um, right at our launch. And she had come from Google. She was there for seven years, you know, building up campaigns, hilariously enough, for Zillow and Expedia. <laughs> so talk about the worlds intersecting. And she said one of the reasons she joined the company and she really believed, you know, in what we were doing is the aggregators always won. If you search something on Google, the aggregators win. There's a reason Expedia shows up. There's a reason Zillow shows up. And it's because a listing in New York does not stand alone. When we add Texas, that actually lifts up New York as the power of our domain, allupfront.com, actually gets elevated entirely. The more juice we have, the more, you know, a user in Texas searches that actually says, oh, this is a legit domain. You know, we're going to actually bring it up earlier. And that's exactly what we've seen. And yes, it's absolutely a long-term strategy. You know, the piece that I'm not really covering here as well is content. And that is absolutely a piece of SEO as well. Yes, you know, in our situation, the listings for every single one of these businesses lends itself really well to an SEO strategy. But we also have a very active blog that we update every few days. You know, our entire narrative and our entire focus is helping parents make educated financial decisions. We don't want you to walk in into that daycare, find out you can't afford it. We don't want you to walk in and, you know, not know what you should budget. We want you to be thinking about how you should do your estate planning. We want you to think about 
Like, should you make your own baby food? You know, even like all those things that have financial implications that really nobody has covered from a content perspective, despite, you know, us always joking that kids are so expensive, nobody actually ever talks about the hard costs. So we've actually been really able to own that narrative and own that content on our site as well. And the blog, you know, in addition to 20% of our listings, the blog is about, I think, 13 to 15% of our traffic as well. So it's actually bringing in its own user base as well. And because we refresh it so often, it feeds really nicely into the rest of our channels. We can post about it on our Instagram profile. When someone you know engages on a Facebook parenting group and says, hey, I can't get my two-year-old to wear a mask. What do I do? We had a really popular blog post about that. So we're able to constantly keep the site refreshed and relevant, even if you know our directory stays the same or you know is not relevant to a user in New York by the content. And a lot of that is SEO because we're able to actually pull what keywords people are searching. And you can do that very easily on Google AdWords. Literally, if you try to create like, you know, a fake ad, see what keywords Google suggests. We were astounded when we first set up our campaigns, not our campaigns, but our keywords in what to use in our blog and on our homepage that I think it was close to three, you know, four top keywords when someone searches daycare associated with daycare on Google were around pricing and cost, yet nobody has tackled this problem. This is amazing. (laughs) I love this story and I just love your advice with it. So tell me what is next for Upfront? Taking over the country. We are launching Houston next week and we are going to go into Illinois very soon, D.C., Philly. Um, our plan, you know, is to pretty much own the country around this and have prices for everything by the end of the calendar year, which is aggressive as hell. But you know, we've built the machine. It's just a matter of making it go faster. Probably eyeing, you know, a larger seed round. You know, come the winter, you know, to sort of fund it to the next step of future industries that we want to go into and really replicate what we've built on the product and on the user growth and keep making parents' lives easier. You know, we keep coming back to that of, you know, investors constantly tell us, you know, you should charge the users. This is really valuable information. You should gate it. And we constantly go back to the question of why did we start this company? And it's to democratize this information. It's to make parents' lives easier. And by gating it and asking people to pay, that's not in line with our philosophy. So it's really trying to figure out, you know, how do we keep doing what we're doing with a financially sustainable way, but still being very true to the vision of what we're trying to build. I love what you're doing. I love that you're staying true to your mission because that is not easy, especially in the startup world. And especially when you have investors making suggestions, right? That's going to make the company more attractive to them. So kudos. I love it. Tell me what being a startup renegade means to you. I think it means constantly coming back to yourself and asking, why are you doing this? You know, even this week, you know, I constantly am questioning like, are we building something that's in line with the vision? Have we lost our way a little bit? You know, if we are adding this, is this something we just needed to do, you know, to keep the company going? Or is it peripheral? So I think it's constantly asking yourself of, you know, do I believe in what I'm doing on a gut level? And it's really, really hard sometimes. I get told by invest, you know, no by investors all the time. 
We got told by the entire childcare industry this week that they hate what we're doing, that they think we're commoditizing their industry and that we're bad for them. But in my gut, I know they're wrong. I know that they're not, they don't have their fingers on the pulse of what the user wants, you know, what millennial parents want. I hate to compare us to like the Ubers and Airbnbs because obviously we'd love to be in that large scale situation. But I feel like that they must have felt that too in the beginning of the hotel world and the taxi world, telling them like, you're crazy, like you're bad for the industry. And they ended up, they're like, no, we know what users want. We know that they want something faster and more efficient and cheaper. And I feel like we're a little bit in that inflection point as well as we know they're wrong, but it's really hard to believe that on a daily basis and stick to that. You know, when you are smaller and when you have investors saying no, it's a constant struggle of how much do you believe in what you're doing? I love it. Thank you so much. Where can we find you online? You can check out our site at allupfront.com. We're very active on Instagram at all underscore upfront. That's really the channel we spend the most time on. We'll occasionally update our LinkedIn and Facebook, but Instagram is uh, where you can find us and then see all the new blog content that we have constantly coming out. Great. And I'm sure that's going to be so inspiring for people who want to use SEO as a strategy to kind of see how you're attacking it, the kind of content you're producing, the frequency, and it's just checking out what other people are doing successfully is a great opportunity for you to be inspired and figure out how you can do it yourself. So thank you so much for mentoring me, inspiring me, and sharing so many good nuggets of wisdom with the audience today. No, this is so much fun. And uh, thank you for having me on. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade. Thank you.